0: This is Terry Crosby, Andy Steiger, Steve Kim. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Thank you for joining us, listeners. Uh, another week of uh, podcast, and we are glad that you are here. We have some good things to talk about today, and uh, we have some uh, returning uh, people <laughs> to the podcast. It seems like we haven't
1: been on for a long time.
2: Yeah, it's been a while <laughs> since the crew's been together. The crew. Yeah.
1: So, hey, Steve, how you doing out way out in Alberta there? Doing pretty well here. I just find that the weather has been quite wet which is very unusual for this time of the year in this part of the world. Here, I thought I moved away from all the rain in British Columbia, and I'm just getting pelted. Every other day, it seems, it rains here, so
2: I'm ready for more sun. Yeah, We had a uh, thunderstorm here last night as well, and I'm noticing it has been raining so much for the summer that the parks are overgrown. The trails are like are, are overgrown. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I yeah, rode my yeah. bike to work and I'm like dodging mm-hmm. briars and stuff because it's wow. just. yeah, it's uh, it's something else. Those that are on the East Coast, God bless you, are in a heat wave. <laughs> <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's there's a nasty heat wave going on, on on pretty much everywhere except where we are. Yeah, is experiencing. We've had one hot day in the last heat. weeks. Like last this past Sunday, it hasn't broken 30
0: yet. No, well, Sunday was 31, 32, something like that. Because I was running that day and it
2: was, I think that's the first for the summer, yeah. Because I've been watching the weather, yeah. Yeah, No, it it was, and it's been terrible for sure. Now, I'm thankful. (laughs) I, as you know, I just got back from Europe, yeah, yeah, and we just left Paris. And today it is going to be 42 degrees in Paris. Wow, that's nasty. And if that wasn't bad enough, those of you who've been to Europe, you know that they don't have air conditioning in Europe. Of all the places I've been in Europe, I've yet to experience air conditioning. Even in their museums, they barely have any AC going. 42. 42. <laughs> Not a Yikes. lot of sleep happens in Paris. And you ever notice where you watch the news and you'll hear that a heat wave hits France or whatever and a whole bunch of old people die? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now I understand why. Oh yeah. Wow. Almost killed me too. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So welcome back. You have been gone a long time. Yeah. I got a month. A month. And your family was with you.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it It was for a part of it. So I went to, I started off in London, went to Cambridge university to present there. I was there for a conference and to present at the conference. That was my first time in Cambridge. Beautiful campus Although I, I gotta say a lot of people are gonna hate me for this, but I'm gonna say it anyways. I prefer Oxford over Cambridge. Ooh I know them fighting. I, I know words. them <laughs> them fighting words for the right people. Uh the thing I didn't like about Cambridge is the campus is massive. It is absolutely huge. Uh, it's very spread out. It's hard to get a feel for the campus. It's only if you do something called punting. And punting is where you get on these boats with poles and you push yourself along. Uh, and then you can better see the campus from kind of the backside, if you will. But the campus is so big that uh, in between classes, like in where I was going, I you'd either have to ride a bike or take a taxi like that. You couldn't walk it. It was that's how big the campus mm. is. So it felt more like a city. I didn't really I didn't really like it. But whereas oxford's much more centralized and kind of fe- has- feels more like you're at hogwarts when you're at- <laughs> 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 nice uh,
1: how oh, wait, long were you so, there
2: for yeah sorry so i was there for a week and then after that uh, then i flew to paris my family met up with me there and then we trained to switzerland and then hmm. in switzerland uh i had the privilege of presenting and taking in uh the world Congress on the association of philosophy of law and social philosophy, something to that effect, short name for that is IVR. Uh, and so that was full of, uh, Uh, law professors and judges and some lawyers from around the world, which was absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. Now, at both of these conferences, I was presenting on the topic of human dignity and specifically arguing for human dignity from the Christian worldview, which in Cambridge got pretty uh, heated at times, which was fantastic towards the end of my presentation, where, where I sneak God in there. Interestingly enough, though, in the World Congress, bringing God into the conversation didn't really raise any eyebrows at all. And, uh, some great discussion was had there at both of these conferences. So I'm looking forward to. Uh, so, yeah, we are going to talk about, about your paper that you gave
0: at both uh, conferences. So, right now, uh, listeners, you need to buckle up because <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk about some weak AI, some strong AI, some tacit knowledge, and some ontology. That's right. It's going to get normal
1: discussion around here, <laughs> is it <not? laughs> We might really. have to define some terms before we get into it. Yeah, for sure. For sure.
2: We'll, we'll do, I'll, I'll do my best to define terms as we go. All right. So Uh, where do you want to start, Andy? It it is a fairly technical conversation, you know, sadly, but I think the best place to start is why, why these conversations are happening. It was funny when I was in Cambridge, the taxi driver taking me to the conference, he says, you know, this conference you're speaking at, he goes, it's a pretty sexy conference. (laughs) 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 And, uh, and and i just i go why is that and he's like well just because ai right now is kind of this hot topic and and it is a hot topic so it was interesting though where you have you know some of these leading thinkers in ai from around the world you know coming together and you're discussing these issues and you're beginning to realize that as a society at large we are wrestling through this as we're going through it it was amazing to me just to kind of see you know the leading people in this and to watch as they're trying to process this, I mean, that's one of the reasons why you have to have these sorts of conferences. Like we're, as a society, we're trying to process this stuff. And that, that was also what was driving the World Congress this year is they said, listen, it's the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And that declaration begins with that fundamental statement that all humans have inherent dignity. And as you know, if you've read that document, it it goes on to talk about things like dignity and equality and inalienable rights, but it gives no philosophical argumentation for what we know to be true. It's just
1: asserted uh, just by fiat. That's right. right? Yeah. We have this inherent dignity. We have no idea where it comes from. So what's really striking for me about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and all of these uh, different human rights documents is that assertion that is made without any sort of support. The silence is really, truly deafening.
2: It, It is. Yet it's also telling because as they're crafting this document, they need to craft something that everyone can sign off to. Mm-hmm. And they can get everybody to sign off on it if they don 't explain how they get to it right as long as they just pause it. This is what we as humans believe. everybody signs off on that they 're like, yeah, we all do believe that we have inherent dignity. Mm. The question though that was brought up to the World Congress was, well, what good reason do we have to believe you know that we have in hum- inherent dignity so for the law community. These are the sorts of things that are being undermined right now and challenged in the legal systems around the world. And so there was this emphasis on saying, well, let's have a conference where we're tackling this issue and and arguing, you know, what what are the foundations for this? Which is interesting, by the way, because these world congresses just recently, there was a Supreme Court case ruling that cited the cohort that I was a part of, uh, but not this year. Obviously, it was one of the previous years. So so these sorts of things actually have a real impact in, in what's happening mm-hmm. in the legal field. So one of the things that was interesting about that, by the way, was also to hear from scholars. And I met scholars from Russia, from Poland, from Brazil, obviously Canada, and UBC was represented, but Australia, mm-hmm. you name it, you know, they were there. And so it was interesting, though, to hear from each of them. The nuances of the laws going on in their countries and how they're, you know, working through these sorts of things in particularly just in the rapid growth of technology, how they're trying to keep up with what's going on. So in your paper, you have four points.
0: So we'll go through those four points. Yeah. You want to start with the first one?
2: Yeah, let's start with the first one. And so this kind of gives you context as to what we're doing as I'm coming into this. So I'm coming into this project from a Christian perspective saying, here is a reason why Christians believe and can give argumentation for that we have human dignity. Now I'm doing this though, in a unique way to kind of set this up. So you understand my first point is I'm using Michael Polanyi and Alan Turing to have this dialogue. So in this way, it kind of removes me from the conversation until I begin to steer the conversation. Uh, But it allows me to juxtapose two different worldviews. I'm able to use Michael Polanyi, who has a structured ontology. And by that, I mean that he he has this understanding of reality as being non-reductive, that it can't be just simply reduced to the physics of the world, that there's something deeper going on, such as purpose and morality, things like dignity. Now, there's this other worldview that's represented by Turing, and in this worldview, he has a reductionistic worldview that reduces the universe down to things like behavior or the particulars of the universe. And so, the first point that I talk about is just this idea of artificial intelligence and pitting Polanyi versus Turing, which has a historical context. And remember, AI is 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 one of the things that I'm addressing in my paper for the purpose of demonstrating that AI is inherently dehumanizing on Turing's model. So that kind of gives you, a, a hopefully, without getting too technical, gives you a little bit of an idea of what's happening. Now, the, the historical background to this is that Turing and Polanyi both taught at Manchester University. Now, Polanyi was a scientist turned philosopher and Turing was a mathematician turned computer scientist. And these two debated regularly with one another as colleagues on the question of can thinking be mechanical? You know, Can, can you create a machine that can think? And so Polanyi encouraged Turing to develop his ideas and to publish uh, his ideas. A lot of people don't realize that. If I may just jump in quickly here, I think Just to clarify,
1: when Turing is asking, can machines think, he's not just asking, can machines mimic the behavior of thinking, but rather, can machines think
2: just as human beings think? Correct. And in a moment, we'll tease that out a little bit more and be very specific by what we mean with regards to that, because that's an absolutely crucial distinction. So in 1949, there is this interdisciplinary dialogue that takes place, famous dialogue that takes place, in which uh, Polanyi and Turing are both participants in this discussion, and they begin to argue back and forth on this point. And Polanyi's point is that a machine can't think, because things like thinking can't be formalized into a step-by-step procedure. This comes to be known as tacit knowledge, or uh, known as Polanyi's paradox, And he gives different examples of this, such as playing chess or diagnosing a disease. Now, I bring those two up because, as we're going to see in a moment, Polanyi was both right and he was both wrong at the same time. Uh, We'll come to that in just a moment. But this does challenge Turing as he's working through his ideas. And so, in 1950, Turing, realizing that he has a difficulty in defining what it even means to think, decides that he's going to, come at this from a different perspective after this dialogue, and he writes this famous paper called Computing Machinery and Intelligence, in which he says this. I'm going to quote Turing here for, for you. He says, instead of attempting such a definition, I shall replace the question by another which is closely related to it and is expressed in relatively unambiguous words. The new form of the problem can be described in terms of a game, which we call the imitation game. Now, you, many of you know that there was a movie about Turing that came out called The Imitation Game, which, <laughs> oddly enough, had nothing to do with The Imitation Game, but <laughs> had to do with you know him using a computer that he created to break the Enigma code, I believe, is, is what he did with that. But he came up with something called a Turing machine. That's one of the other things that makes him quite famous. But the thing that I focused on here was his Imitation Game gets... Coined as the Turing test And the Turing test is just simply The idea of whether or not You could create a machine That could mimic thinking So that's what he's getting at here Is that if I can't define it Well what if I just do it If I create a machine that can mimic it Isn't that the same thing as doing it That ultimately sets up A philosophical discussion That we are still in to this day because machinery, as you guys know, has developed different algorithms that are that are able to do some really unique things. And one of the things that they're able to do is being—they were actually inspired by the human brain that, that uses neural networks. Being able to use such things as deep learning, machine learning, is able to mimic thinking. The way you know an aspect of thinking that allows computers to do things that Polanyi didn't think that they could do, such as play chess or diagnostic disease. Um, there, for example, a study just recently came out where machine learning is now able to diagnose skin cancer on par with a dermatologist. And those are things people didn't think you know, was possible. But we're seeing, as I've talked about on this show before, we're seeing machines that can play chess better than humans, that can play Jeopardy better than humans, that can play go better than humans and by the way the chess and go as i was reading through turing he references both of those games now there's another game he uh, that he mentioned he didn't mention jeopardy that one they just did anyways but the one that he mentioned was chess go and bridge and it's interesting to my knowledge they haven't even attempted bridge yet apparently that's considerably more complicated than uh than go At any rate, the thing to appreciate what's going on here is a distinction ultimately gets made by John Searle in between what is referred to now as weak AI and strong AI. Now, weak AI would be the mimicking of thinking, but as you were talking about, Steve, that's not the same as thinking, whereas Mm -hmm. strong AI says, no, if you could say pass something like the Turing test... And by pass the Turing test means you've mimicked it to such a degree that you're convincing people, you know, this machine's convincing people that it's human. Well, then that qualifies as thinking. And Mm -hmm. so what you see there philosophically then is the reduction of behavior in that you can reduce something then to its behavior, in that if you 're able to mimic the behavior it's the it's the same as the thing you are your behavior basically is the premise of strong ai that's right, so then all that you need to do to have a human being then once you make that philosophical move is just to mimic a human being. it just needs to look human and behave human, and thus it is human and we're we're seeing this this movement. And this is something that came up a lot at the World Congress, you know, just people going, why is it that we're wanting to make machines humans? Why wouldn't we want to make machines help humans? You know, it's, it's, an int- it's a curious thing, our desire to want to make a machine into a human. But these obviously are philosophically driven. It's also interesting that the humans are anthropomorphically driven as well. We tend to in the sense that we give things human characteristics mm-hmm. to such a degree that, uh, as I've mentioned on the show before, in 2017, Sophia was granted citizen, citizenship to, to Saudi Arabia. Now, that machine is interesting but pathetic in that, I mean, it can't even pass the Turing test, yet it's still granted citizenship. And the question just becomes, I mean, granted citizenship is crazy, but what happens when you grant a machine what if the prize is higher than citizenship? I mean, what if you pass the Turing test and you're going to grant you know, that machine humanity? Well, now this raises legal questions such as with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, I'll, I'll refer to that as the UDHR. That now raises the question of whether or not that machine has inherent dignity or does it just have dignity? And you can take that into all kinds
1: of really absurd areas, right? So for example, uh, when we had Andy Bannister come and dialogue on human rights and things like that a couple of years ago, uh, he mentioned the fact that, you know, the Amazon forest, a person status or this river in New Zealand, I think it was, getting a status as a legal person and that sort of thing. That's correct. And so in some ways, when I think about that, I'm like, wow, that really cheapens the idea of personhood and citizenship and all of these things, right? Which is interesting because
2: they're doing it for the opposite. They they see that in, when something's seen as having dignity, people will respect it. So it becomes this emphasis for giving a river, you know, dignity, uh, human dignity, because now now you'll respect the river. But I agree with you, Steve. What you've done, though, is you haven't given the river dignity. You've just stolen dignity from the human. Because
1: I'm thinking to myself, it doesn't take too many steps from there to say, well, what makes that river different from me if both of us can have human dignity?
2: This brings in the question where the UDHR is saying not just dignity, but inherent dignity. and. And that's something that we need to think about because this is where AI becomes dehumanizing and and as I argue inherently dehumanizing is because if you're going to grant a machine humanity, then that means that you're coming up with qualifications that the machine would need to pass to be granted humanity, thus being worthy of dignity. But the problem is the as the UDHR expresses and that people intuitively understand is the humans come into the world with dignity. That's what we mean by inherent. And it means nobody gave it to you. You had it by virtue of being human. As you come into the world, that is the qualification is being human and no one gave it to you. No one can take it away.
0: So this was your second point, right? Dehumanization, the danger of denying and imitating human dignity.
2: That's right. Yeah. This is the, this is the danger of denying and imitating dignity. Now, one thing that comes to mind is
1: this idea that nobody gave you that inherent dignity, you know, just inherent dignity by definition means that you were just born with it. Nobody gave it to you. But when we say nobody, what we really mean by that is no human gave it to you. Yeah, that's a good point. Because if you think about it, value, which is really another word for dignity or worth, you know, that sort of thing is personhood dependent. Like it is a quality that is bestowed by a person. Uh, so I remember having this conversation years ago with, with my buddy, Eric Budding, we started talking about value and he pulled out his old iPhone. He said, what was this worth when it first came out? And I said, well, without a contract, maybe, I don't know, a thousand dollars or something like that. And he said, well, what, what is this worth now? Now, mind you, this phone at this point was already two, three years old. So I was like, I don't know, maybe four or five hundred dollars. And he said, what changed? Well, people valuing it now see it differently. Right. And then he took it a step farther. He said, let's say there are no people on this planet at all. And there's this this iPhone just sitting there. Right. For no reason whatsoever. Now, what's this worth? Well, nothing, because nobody is valuing this thing. And so the point that we brought up was, yeah, value is something that is bestowed by a person or persons. And so if we understand dignity to be synonymous, then we would have to acknowledge, okay, even
2: inherent value, it had to come from somewhere. So where did that come from? And this is something that we'll get into a little bit more in a moment, but on that point You'll notice there then that as humans value things, we have criteria for which we value them and even say with an iPhone, which we'll put a dollar amount on, on that iPhone. Mm -hmm. Whereas with inherent dignity, you're saying you've come into this world with dignity. The qualification is just simply being human and that dignity, you know, as the UDHR goes on is going to tell you, well, that it's equal amongst all human beings and it's inalienable being that it's rights that can't be taken away Mm -hmm that starts to raise some really significant metaphysical questions of why that is the case, particularly once you start to adopt this kind of Turing idea of the, of the Turing test, this changes things. And, and again is inherently dehumanizing in that there are now qualifications being given on what it means to pass the Turing test. So that means then that if you can mimic humanity to the convincing level, well, then that machine is to be human that is giving a qualification now to dignity, and in doing so, it undermines inherent dignity. Dignity can no longer be inherent if a machine is allowed to become a human being. This is significant because think about what happens if we flip this back around and take the Turing test and apply it to a human being.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That's that's what I'm worried about. Yeah, that's right. Because now I ask, can you pass the Turing test? And now if I if I ask that of my you know my grandmother who has alzheimers well no she can't pass the turing test.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: On that then she isn't actually a human being or take a child for example what if a of a, a child's being asked can it pass the turing test somebody disabled? Right, Yeah. not a chance Well now all of a sudden, see see, this starts To draw out the lines of demarcation Of what constitutes a human, what doesn't Constitute a human being And you can begin to see now that it's a very Narrow circle that's actually Going to fit within that Turing test And you can begin to appreciate How dehumanizing this is And what starts to happen there
1: Too is that the very concept Of human rights then Becomes useless because The concept of human rights is there precisely to protect these vulnerable persons, right? If, it, right? if it doesn't do that, then what good is human
2: rights? Well, Steve, this is the very reason the UDHR was created in the first place, mm-hmm. is they saw what happened under a scientific worldview. A lot of people don't fully appreciate what's going on there that begins to embrace this way of adjudicating value. Through something like eugenics, you know, are you well born or not, right? Because that's really what's happening with a Turing test: is are you well born or not? Are you able to pass or not? Well, in Germany, had their own: can you pass or not, right? And this ultimately led to not just in Germany, but in Russia and elsewhere, and with what happened with the, the, the Japan, did with the Chinese, and because you have to remember, you know, the UDHR is coming out of not just the Nuremberg trials, but the Tokyo trials, and the atrocities that took place during World War II, and they're creating this document for the explicit purpose of this not happening again. Mm-hmm. It's
0: interesting, when you talk about that document, the ethicists that came together, uh, created this document of inherent dignity, but they couldn't g- agree on a ground that's right for that inherent dignity.
2: they were all coming at it from different ways, and that was what was creating all the trouble you know is is how are we going to create this document because everybody wants to ground it differently, and so at the end of the day, they just decided, well, we all agree on what's the case, we don't agree on how to ground it. So let's just have a groundless document, right? Okay. But that's what's causing the that's what's causing the, the the issues today. And I want to bring up a unique issue of dehumanization that's just now coming to the forefront. Uh, it's something I've been developing that I've I've referred to as artificial dignity. Stick with me here. This is a unique. This is an argument that I gave at Cambridge and World Congress on a form of dehumanization that I think that we need to be. More cautious of aware of and and really that that is going to need some uh, legal framework to, to protect people and that is that our technology through things like machine learning is able and just our ability to, with regards to robotics, you have to understand to pass something like the Turing test, there's two different ways you could pass it. You could pass a weak form of the Turing test where, say, you're texting with your phone and you know, you're know you with a chatbot, for example, and that chatbot is so sophisticated, its algorithm is able to convince you that it's a person, right? That, that would be one form of passing the Turing test. That would be a weak form. Something like Sophia would be a strong form of the Turing test where it's incorporating not just algorithms, but robotics. And so you have a machine that actually looks like a human being and it's behaving like a human being. The question though becomes, if you're creating a machine that looks like a human being, what do you do with that machine? Because depending upon what you do with that machine is actually going to have a dehumanizing effect on you. And one of the prime examples, and you've heard me talk on this before, is something called robot sex so that if I'm creating this machine, you know, to pass the Turing test, right, to mimic a human being, to to be perceived as a human being, but my purpose in doing so is so that I can act out my rape fantasies on this machine. Well, that has a lot of problems, you know, built into it with regards to what's going to happen to that human being. Now, stick with me on this because what I'm arguing is not – that you will be dehumanizing the machine because the machine has no humanity to take away. The problem is, is you dehumanize yourself when you create a machine to look and behave as a human being and you then use that machine for dehumanizing purposes. See, it's affecting the way that you see yourself and it's affecting the way that you're seeing other human beings. Now, to really press this point, All you got to do is take this a step further, which is actually taking place in our culture today. And that is that machines are being created right now to look and behave like children. I've referred to this as pedobots. So you've got pedophilia then taking place through these, these machines. And, and, you know, it's interesting because at Cambridge, I mean, there were some people that wanted to argue that this was a good thing so that at least, you know, these pedophiles are having these relationships with machines and, and not real people. But that's the problem, isn't it, is if you begin to shape the way people are thinking about these children, the question becomes, well, does it actually leave this? this machine realm and go into the human realm. And we've, we've already seen, and I cite this in my paper where we've seen in the virtual world where virtual pedophilia does have a direct correlation to the real world, physical pedophilia. And I I don't think that that should be a shocker.
0: So we have talked about this in a, previous podcast about the creeper bill right that's right so you can go back to that uh, podcast and inform yourself a little bit more about it
2: yeah th- so we won't go to we won't go any farther than that that's a good point terry you can go back and, and check out that podcast but it is helpful to appreciate that this is a form of dehumanization that is uh directly related uh to this argument uh- um,
1: before we wrap up, as we were talking about the World Congress and how there are judges and lawyers there thinking about this stuff with other scholars, it just kind of occurred to me that our our laws are really informed by our philosophies, not the other way around or or it shouldn 't be right but so much of what we see today in our culture is we 're trying to do exactly that we 're trying to even like bypass. Uh, philosophy and good thinking, and just using the sheer of power of the state and just throwing down the law. What you're talking about presupposes that our laws are based on philosophical thinking, and we
2: need to get our philosophy straight if we're going to have good laws. That becomes one of the challenges, doesn't it, Steve? We've talked about this on the show where, listen, pre-enlightenment, an authoritative statement was a theological statement. Enlightenment a the, you know, authoritative statement was a scientific statement. We've moved into a new realm, I would say, since the UDHR, that now an authoritative statement is a legal statement. And that becomes problematic now, because if you just start throwing around the weight of the law as you see fit, the problem is, is you can then begin to undermine the very foundation that that law is supposed to be operating from. And you start to realize that there's actually an authority above the law that's giving direction to the law.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: And so that, that's an important point that I think that we need to appreciate. And I think that there's a real understanding in the legal community right now that, that that's taking place, that, you know, we're, we're starting to undermine the very project we're seeking to do as we seek to make a civilized society. I mean, one of those ways not to go too deep down this rabbit hole, but that was brought up by some law professors in Australia is that there are laws that are taking place right now in Australia to really police freedom of speech to such a degree that it creates real challenges where, you know, you, you need to be able to have the freedom to say You know, at some level, what you think and feel so that debate and dialogue begins to take place. But if you police the state to such a degree that everything gets policed, and one person brought up what I I loved called the friendship police. You know, if I start policing friendships now so that you, you know, for example, get invited to a birthday party and you decide not to go, but you just call, you know, the BFFP, you know, the best friend forever police, right? Right. And they go and they, you know, they get your friend and bring him to the door. It begins to raise the real question of what kind of society is that? What kind of relationship is that? And when we say, well, it's not really a relationship at all. I mean, if I'm going to a birthday party because I'm afraid that I'm going to be sued for not going, you can begin to appreciate that my presence at the birthday party is just fake. And and so you can start to appreciate that there's this level of fakeness that can begin to take place within a society that isn't allowed to voice their thoughts and to have open dialogue on issues. So I don't want to go too deep down that rabbit hole. We're going to have to make this uh, podcast into two parts. Uh, We've just figured that out. (laughs) There's a lot to it. There's a lot to it. I do want to say one thing, though, before we start to before we wrap up this first part in Cambridge, one of the speakers that was at the conference that I met, who's absolutely lovely, very, very fascinating lady. I'm hoping to have her on the show. Her name is Kathleen Richardson. I think we'll put on the show notes an article that was written by Forbes magazine on her. She is She's at the forefront of arguing against robot sex and really challenging that worldview. She did her PhD at Cambridge. Part of that was doing some work at MIT, and she really had a Sherry Turkle moment where she began to see how dehumanizing this all can be. Now, she's not a Christian, which we had a very interesting conversation though, because as she began to talk to me about her conversion experience, as she really began to see the dehumanizing nature of all this, it's interesting that where did she go to? She went to a very Christian worldview, very Christian ethic. And I told her that in her conversation, you know, I go, you, I go, you realize it, that you have a Christian worldview and she has, you know, smile came over her face. She's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> but 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 she hasn't she hasn't taken that next step but she I find it really interesting that at the very foundation of christianity is the pursuit of human dignity and the seeking out of justice when that is being destroyed when that is being threatened it's fascinating how much of the christian ethic revolves around human beings having dignity, being made in the image of God. And and you see that at the very core of Christianity where you've got the incarnation, where God values humanity to such a degree, demonstrating the the value of a human being, that, that inherent value to such a degree that Jesus would be willing to come in body, suffer and die for you. I mean, talk about equality, right? Mm. There's nothing more that God could have paid for any one of you than his son's life. Like that's the highest price. Jesus says that, right? He says, what's the most you can pay for something? Your life. And he gave his life for you. God couldn't have paid any more for you. It's an equal value amongst all people that you have a dignity that was worthy of God's own son dying for you.
0: Well, this has been a great conversation today already, Andy. Thank you very much. We'll come back next week with your next two points, I think. Yep. And uh, there is still a lot more to talk about here. So we appreciate you listeners coming back next week. And I think maybe, maybe give us another few more stories of your time there and your conversations, that kind of thing. It seems like Absolutely. a lot happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot happened. Thank you for joining us, listeners. The AC Podcast is the Ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back next week with more things to think about.